19, verses 1 through 25. On the third day, new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the people, 
And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Hebrews 12. Feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears." For you have not come to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal greeting, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, last week, we were discussing God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in the land of Egypt. And you may remember, if you were here with us, that we described the covenant that God established with Abraham at that time, he was known as Abram in Genesis 15. God says to Abram a very uh, interesting thing. We looked at this in the context of the problem of evil. Abraham is told by God, know for certain. So God knows this, and now he's telling Abraham to know this. Know for certain that your descendants will live as slaves for 400 years in a land that's not theirs. They'll live in subjection. And, and so God tells Abraham, Come, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to become a people. I'm going to install you. Your, your descendants will be known to me. And then he says, oh, by the way, there will be this somewhat brief interlude of 10 generations of slavery. 
we looked at, at this in the context of the problem of evil because how is it the case that God can allow the Hebrews to grow up, to be, to be multiplied in the context of this oppressive forced servitude? And the reason we saw that God, God merely needs a morally sufficient reason by which he has uh, to cause things to be which seem to us to be less than ideal, right? We, we looked at the problem of evil, and we noticed how you don't have to figure out all of the details. All you need is to allow God to give one morally sufficient reason. And so the, the reason that we looked at for the existence of Israel was that she would shine like a diamond on the dark blackness of Egypt, that she would be identified as a nation who is being prospered. And Israel, this, this actually happens in the text if you read Genesis and Exodus, Israel is multiplied greatly such that they begin to overtake the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians oppress them and, and force them into labor. Um, and, and in this context, God is bringing about the deliverance. We also noticed how God had already decided beforehand to deliver them before they begin to groan under the weight of their servitude. And so Israel is not earning God's deliverance. They're not earning God's favor. God's choice of Israel to be what we see today and what our topic is today as a holy nation, a nation full of priests, kings who are also priests, this choosing of Israel is not done with condition. It's not done in accordance with what Israel's done. And so God's promise to Abraham was grace before the servitude, and also his deliverance of Israel before the giving of the law, again, was grace. And so we're beginning to see covenant history is always moved forward by God's continuing giving of grace by various ways and means. And so we see that not only is God's promise grace, God's deliverance is grace, but also he gives the law in order that his people would know right from wrong and that they would be able to be set apart from the nation's of the earth. And so that itself, although today we we think in in two opposed categories of law versus grace, it really is the grace of God as Paul explains in Galatians for us to know what sin is and the way we know what sin is is through the giving of the law. So God is about to give the law, but before we touch on that, which we're going to look at in the next coming weeks, we're going to look at an event which is the foundation for the giving of the law. This event, which we just read of and which we're going to examine in detail, is supposed to be the backdrop or the background, if you will, for the giving of the law. The law is not given without context. It's given with the context of the promise given to Abraham that he would become a nation and the promise that God would deliver and the actual deliverance being completed. And now a further element of grace, the revelation of God himself as holy. So we're going to look at this in six elements, the grace of covenant, as we just mentioned, we talked about it last week. We're going to look at it in a little more detail. We're going to look at the the necessity for a preparation before God comes near. We read that God tells Moses to tell the people to wash their garments. We're going to look at what that means. We're going to look at what happens when God does come near, what actually takes place in the physical realm, which I think these, if, if nothing in the scriptures enthralls you, get a hold of these passages, the major prophets, Revelation 4 or 5, Revelation 1. These captivate the soul in a way that, to me, no other portions of scripture really do. When God comes near, he reveals himself as a holy God. 
And this gives us all the more of an understanding of what Jesus Christ does when he comes and displays his love. We're going to look at the calling on Israel to be this holy people that we just spoke of. We're going to look at what takes place right after this in the giving of the law, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which the Hebrew writer tells us, which was spoken of beforehand in these events. And then finally, our necessity for an examination of our hearts that we would not refuse the one who speaks. The Hebrew writer tells us that we are able to refuse Christ, even though we've heard of him, just as the Israels, uh, the Israelites refused Moses, even while he was coming down the mountain. And so it behooves us to examine our faith and to test ourselves as the scriptures exhort us time and again. So with that, let's get started. Before Yahweh brings Israel into the covenant, he first delivers them from bondage in Egypt. Many people think Israel had to earn God's favor by doing the law. And indeed, this passage of scripture does say, if you will keep my commandments, you will indeed be my people. But the giving of the commandments, although that is conditional, the giving of the commandments and the context for how they got the commandments was not conditional. And so God is dispensing grace on Israel. He's beginning to establish a relationship with a people of his own choice without respect to what they've done. And we see this over and over again mirrored in the gospel. And so Yahweh is bringing about a covenant, and he's beginning to explain to Moses what this covenant will entail. If you remember before Moses goes and delivers Egypt, he first was prepared by Yahweh in the wilderness through an encounter at the burning bush. And Moses is afraid at first to look because he sees this bush which continues to burn and is not consumed. I don't know about you, I've seen many fires, and if you're stoking a fire for more than about 15 to 20 minutes, you're going to add logs. And Moses is seeing this bush which is in the middle of the wilderness. If you've ever seen a dry plant go up, it goes up quickly. And the bush continues to burn, and it's not consumed. And so Moses sees this and begins to encounter Yahweh, and Yahweh calls Moses and begins to prepare him with a revelation of who Yahweh is as the creator, who will also be revealed to Israel as the deliverer. And so Yahweh is beginning this revelation to Moses, and he's about to give the law. So what does God do again? He prepares them by taking Moses into an encounter with himself. While Moses went up, verse 3, Exodus 19, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Notice the family aspect to this. The house of Jacob is literally the sons of Jacob and those sons' descendants. So God is not, these are not a people who are alien to Yahweh. They're not strangers. They know him. And so Moses is speaking to them in a, in a, continuity of faith, although may, it, it may be very dim, they at least know Yahweh's name. That's why, that's why Moses says, when, when Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? God responds, say I am, understanding that that would be known by the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is no No other nation in the history of the world has had a existence come about in this manner, where God from heaven fought for them. You hear various stories throughout history, and they're all fantastic. They're all wonderful of various tribes overthrowing their oppressors. You think of 
stories of coups in, in Europe and, and the tribal warfares that happened in Asia. But none of those tribes ever claimed to have a God fight for them. And even if they did claim, it was never reality. Here, Yahweh himself has fought the Egyptians, as we saw last week, when Yahweh destroys Pharaoh and his chariots. As Moses sings in his wonderful song, he throws the rider and its horse into the sea, or the horse and his rider. And, and so Yahweh is beginning to, to establish a context, a revelation for Moses, that he would be able to understand what this law is and why it's given. The context for God establishing covenant is not that Israel can ever earn God's deliverance, but rather it's evident in his free and sovereign choice of them. Not only did Yahweh foreknow, but he also promised Abraham to bring them out. And after bringing them out, he now prepares them how they should live. God is not just giving Israel this piece of land without training them. We see over and over again in the Old Covenant scriptures, Yahweh is shown as a father, especially Hosea 11 shows this. Israel, called Ephraim in that passage, is walking along, and he, as a young boy, is, is it's poetic language if you're un, unaware, he as a young boy is stumbling. And so it says that Yahweh leads him with cords of kindness. It, he leads him with instruction. He leads him with context. We saw how the wall of water which was established was a boundary to the right hand and to the left hand, over and over a symbol in the scriptures of God's law. And when Joshua goes into the land, he's told, do not depart and do not turn to the right nor to the left. Nineveh, when they're seen as a wicked and idolatrous city nation, they're said to be people who cannot distinguish between their right hand and their left hand. It's it's a lang- it's a way of using language to say God is establishing boundaries for his people. And so he's not giving Israel the land without context, without training. Yahweh is a good father, and he's training up Jacob the right way. And so it, it, it's kind of like this. If you gave a 13-year-old the keys to your car, Yahweh does not send Israel into the land without proper instruction. And even that, he sh- through the time in the wilderness— he begins to chastise them and train them that they should not turn away. Unfortunately, that does not take very well, as we know the story. But God is giving Israel a law for a land, a law to govern themselves with, by which they will understand how they are to operate in this promised land. Through the law, Israel is going to know what is good and evil, a grace in itself. As we see in Galatians and Romans, that knowledge of sin comes through the law. Without the law, you don't know what sin is. Yahweh will show them the one who wrote the law a greater grace than simply giving the law alone. Now, of course, we understand that by giving the law, God was not giving grace so as to perform the law, but rather the the law spoke to a righteousness which is required by God, but not required by God in such a way as you do the law to earn it, but rather you believe the promise that came before it which Galatians makes clear. The law which came 430 years after does not set aside the covenant of promise which came to Abraham, which was always that God will form a people. And so Israel is being given this law, and this context for the law is also established by a revelation of the one who wrote the law, the one who embodies and speaks forth the law. Yahweh desires to make Israel a people among the nations of the earth who would represent his righteousness to them. Israel is going to be a gemstone, if you will, or a focal point for human history. And God is desiring to craft a a group of people 
that would be able to be identified as followers of him. And all the other nations which have been running from God, we see this running begin at Babel when God tells the people of the earth through Noah to go out again and to fill the earth. And they decide, no, we would like to establish a tower. And God comes down and diffuses them and, and disperses them throughout the, na- uh, throughout the earth. And they continue to run away from him. Just because they leave Babel, they don't leave Babel in their hearts. They follow after other gods. They follow after wrong practices. And this is what we saw the context of Leviticus 18, of Yahweh beginning to, to have the land spew out its inhabitants so that Israel would come and be a righteous representation there. And so Israel is being prepared by God. And in that preparation, God is preparing Moses, the priest and mediator of this law, which is about to be dispensed. Verse 5, now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured, my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice the context for all the priestly duties given in the later portions of Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus especially. They're all done in the context of a priest among priests. Now, what is the point here? The point is that this calling is the same as our calling today. God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests, but what does that mean? Well, many of us, maybe we don't think of uh, pastors or elders as priests, but in a way they are. But if you grew up with any sort of uh, high liturgical worship style, you may understand the role of a priest. And the role of a priest, although it's changed slightly since Christ has come, uh, tra- changed drastically since Christ has come, it, it is to represent God to the people and also likewise to represent the people to God. You may have heard the term intercessory prayer, that is to intercede or go between. This is the role of a priest. It is to go in before God and appeal to God to spare his people, to be to be covenantally faithful to his people, which God always loves and wishes to do, and is also to go to the people and to warn them should they approach God without a holy and reverent fear. And so this intermediary role is what God wants for all of Israel to do, a kingdom full of priests, a nation that is holy, devoted to the Lord. So Israel is to act as a priest to all the nations of the world. Israel is supposed to go through the law to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And from this capital, Israel will then begin to export the law to the nations of the earth. We see this promise over and over again, and it's finally realized in Acts 1, as we've talked about elsewhere, that God, uh, Jesus Christ says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem. And what does he tell his disciples to do, go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then the utmost parts of the earth, ever-expanding influence of the gospel. But what is that gospel? He says, go preach, baptize, and teach. Teach what? Teach them to observe everything that I commanded. Jesus said when he came, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so understanding that rightly, we see the severity of what's happening. God is about to give Israel the major key by which she will understand righteousness and through the keeping of that law would be a kingdom of priests to the earth. Now, this is God's desire, and God fully knows 
well beforehand what will take place. And so this is a continuity of the covenants. There's differences between old and new covenants. This here is a continuity, as we'll see. This is the major point of today's teaching, is that we also are called to take on this exact same role. But just as God meets with Moses in the wilderness before bringing Israel out of Egypt, he now meets with him again before giving them the law. It would be unkind for the Lord to do anything other than what he's about to do in showing himself. Verse 9, second part, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Notice that God gives a commandment to kill anyone in the people who violate God's command. That doesn't sound very nice to me, but I didn't write this. Verse 13, no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. The the idea here is that to trespass against God's boundary is so severe that God doesn't want any physical person in Israel to touch them but rather to throw stones upon them so that they would fall under the weight of the judgment which they do, ju, uh, duly deserve by violating God's law. This is terrifying. When the trumpet sounds a long brass blast, they shall come up to the mountain. It doesn't say they shall come up on the mountain. Very important distinction. The people are told to wash their garments, and before coming near the presence of God, they must prepare. They cannot just approach in presumption. They can't just approach in any way that they choose. They have to come according to the way that he wants them to come. The understanding is clear. The children of Jacob, let alone the Gentiles, cannot approach God on their own terms. This is why all the religions of the earth that do not understand the clear teaching of Jesus and the apostles are idolatry because they are attempting to approach God outside of God's prescribed means. This is what it means to to reject the blood of Christ. It means to attempt to approach God however you wish, but God is holy. God remains holy. There's no change in him when he comes near. He comes as he is. God is perfect in all of his attributes. The scriptures say there's no shadow of turning in him. There's no darkness within the Lord. And also when he comes... He comes in such a way as that he remains as he is. There's no change in him. He's eternal. And so when he comes near, being holy in the midst of a people who are unholy, there's a clash that's going to happen. And so Yahweh in love establishes boundaries so that the people would not be destroyed. It would be unloving. You say this is a bad thing that God wants the people not to come up to the mountain. It would be unloving if he didn't tell them And they presumed and rushed up the mountain, and because of their own sin, they perished in his presence. That would be greatly unloving. Yahweh comes down to meet with Moses on Mount Sinai, and when he comes, he's not putting on a show. Okay, earlier I referred to these passages as the most awe-inspiring portions of Scripture. The reason why is not because these are like you know, it's not better poetry. There's there's great poetry throughout all the scriptures. But these encounters, Exodus 19 and, and 20 and uh, Isaiah 1, chapter 6, 
uh, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 1, 4, and 5, all these chapters, uh, Daniel chapter 6, all these chapters which speak of the holiness of God are amazing to me because they are not pyrotechnic shows. This isn't God coming down on Mount Sinai and putting on a show to, you know, it's not the Wizard of Oz, basically, is what I'm saying. Have you seen the Wizard of Oz? If you haven't seen, I didn't actually see it when I was a kid. I was, I wasn't allowed. Um, But I saw it later when I was an adult. And basically this, you know, Oz guy is pulling some gears and levers behind a curtain. And he makes himself out to be this great, I think they call him the great and terrible Oz. But he's, he's nothing behind the curtain. He's just this like crotchety old man. And and God is, when he comes to Sinai, he's not putting on a pyrotechnic show so that Israel will be entertained. This isn't what, what happens at Sinai. It doesn't happen because God is full of himself and he wants Israel to really appreciate him. It comes because God is holy and the physical created realm can't do anything but catch on fire when he comes near. Ripples and echoes of his glory begin to manifest in creation such that it buckles under the weight of his presence. Presence. Let's look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. If you're beginning to be a student of scripture, keep that in mind. Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4. On the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Notice Here, God comes and the people respond. The people are not coming to God on their own. They're not attempting to approach God in their own presumption, but rather Moses is leading them to respond to God's coming near. That's always the message of faith is to respond to what God has done and is doing. Verse 19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of Uh, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up from as the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. I want you to imagine something. If you need to close your eyes, it might help. But you've got a bucket of water, and uh, let's make it a five-gallon bucket. Uh, Let's make it a Home Depot five-gallon bucket. I just love Home Depot, the let's do this. I love those commercials. Um, Anyway, it's a bucket of water, and and it's it's full. It's a five-gallon bucket, and it's full. Now drop a brick into the water. What happens? The brick instantly sinks. What else happens? What happens to the water? It splashes, and as the brick is beginning to approach the water, it responds to the brick. It begins to quake and undulate. There's ripples through the water because it cannot stand the weight, the displacement of the mass of the brick. And this is what happens when Moses is on the mountain and he sees God coming near. He sees Mount Sinai beginning to respond to the weight of the glory of God. It begins to buckle and to shake under the holiness and the weight of God's glory. This is amazing to me. This is soul-captivating stuff. This is way better than Iron Man 3 or whatever. Although they do some explosions on mountains, it wasn't like this. The created realm cannot contain the holiness and the holy revelation of the creator. It simply cannot contain it. It can't withstand it. The the prophets say elsewhere, the mountains melt in the presence of the Lord. This is what that prophet's speaking of. He's not saying that they're actually made out of wax. They're made out of stone. That tells you how great the fire of God is. The holiness of God is seen as the mountain catches fire and is surrounded by a cloud. And this is the beginning of the context of worship. It's cloud and fire all throughout the scriptures from this point forward. 
This encounter is the foundational reality of the giving of the law, which is Israel's identity as the covenant people of God. They do not have an identity apart from the promise and the giving of the law that God delivered them out of Egypt. Whenever Jacob, that is to say Israel as a nation personified as Yahweh's son, Jacob, uh, by, by saying Yahweh's son, I'm not saying that they're Jesus Christ, just clearly so you understand that that's an old covenant way of speaking of the fatherly relationship between Yahweh and Israel. He calls him Jacob, his son. Whenever Jacob reflects on the law, he will have to remember the one who who came in the giving of the law. Whenever Israel, whenever any of the Israelites reflect on these events, when they remember, as they were told over and over again, to remember the Lord, they have to deal with this revelation. They have to reckon with these events. So this is the calling on Israel. That calling is still on God's people today, the church. And we're going to look at how the continuity exists between these two uh, two events. By God's covenant mercy, he has opened up our eyes to the light of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ's work, we've been moved out of darkness and into light. God still desires today to do this by grace, to form a prophetic community that is a community which would testify against the world's unrighteousness and testify of the righteousness which comes about through Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, But you, Peter's, who's, speaking, who's Peter speaking to? He's speaking to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Look at the purpose. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That you may is speaking about end goals. God is forming a people to be a holy nations, uh, a holy nation that they would with one voice prophetically declare to the world around them the glories of Jesus Christ. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people. Right? Remember what happened to Israel? She was, she was a, a, they were slaves in Egypt. They did, were not a nation. They did not have a piece of land. And they've been given a piece of land. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is post-salvation for the church here. For the members of the church, they have received mercy, and they are being built into a holy house. The order of God's work is the same. Just as Israel was called out of Egypt, so also we were called out of darkness and into light. And, and likewise, we are given a law just as they were to keep and to do, not by our own effort, but rather through the power of the Holy Spirit. We who have no identity become a new people by God's call and action, not our own. Jesus Christ came before you wished to, to follow him and seek him. Amen both in the order of how God applies his work to your life and the historical chronology of the events, God moves first. Mount Sinai was a mere shadow of the heavenly mountain. When people read Hebrews 12 and they look at this passage and they they perhaps are tempted to think that the Hebrew writer is saying that we should be less fearful than of Yahweh because this is the new covenant and God's happy now. They miss the context of Hebrews 12 over and over again. God is, through the Hebrew writer, is warning the church, do not be like ignorant and unrighteous Israel. Do not war against God's self-revelation. Rather, if this happened to them, what will happen to you 
now that no no sacrifice remains any longer, Hebrews chapter 6. The Hebrew writer tells us that the reality spoken of at Sinai has come to pass. Sinai was a picture of heaven, and the Hebrew writer then begins to explain to those who have come to Christ that this has begin, begun to be their reality. Uh, Exodus 19, 22 through 24. Uh, that's, that's the wrong thing. Sorry, I'm out of order. Uh, yeah, so I copied over a slide. Sorry. Whereas the law given at Sinai could not establish righteousness at all, the atonement of Christ does establish righteousness. So, so not only are God's people now given righteousness rather than attempting to seek it on their own, they are now also united to Christ, both by his death and his resurrection. This twofold uniting, which we see spoken of in this chapter, uh, are, are foundational to the Christian reality, the uh, walking out of the faith. Instead of washing clothing, which will become dirty again, which this is the excuse of every teenage son or daughter, why do I have to make my bed? I'm just going to sleep in it later today. Or why do I have to take a shower? I'm just going to get dirty again. Instead of having to wash external garments, God begins to, through the baptism, apply a washing to the heart. And so in being united to Christ's death, we are given access to the righteousness which comes by faith, not through the keeping of the law. While we still tremble and fear, we now have confident access to his presence. It's no longer we are permitted to only come near the base of the mountain, but now we are invited up just as Moses and the elders of Israel ate and drank with the Lord, which happens later on in the book of Exodus. So also Christ invites us to eat with him and to drink with him through his supper. Christ having ascended to heaven continues to speak to men concerning righteousness through his spirit in the preaching of the gospel. This is what the Hebrew writer is warning of when he says, be careful not to refuse him who's speaking. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that's really the nail in the coffin on the idea that the, the Hebrew writer is attempting to appease or lessen the, the severity of the conscience of the, of the person reading the warnings in Hebrews 12. Some, some read Hebrews and they're tempted to think, oh, well, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That means God will save us no matter what. Brothers and sisters, that is heresy. If we remain unfaithful to the end, we deny the blood of Jesus Christ. God is saying in this verse, if, if these people who died, and this was only a physical reality, and, and there was only Moses speaking from a mountain, giving the law, if you continue to refuse the one who's speaking, now the one who's speaking shifted to Christ, he'll say to you at one point, depart from me. I never knew you. You practices, you who practice lawlessness. And so the Hebrew writer is warning who? Not, not those in the world, those in the church. Look at the context. This warning is, is in the middle of an epistle written to a group of churches. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. This warning is for you, and this warning is for me. This warning is for us collectively as a people, but also individually. Moses gave the law to a people, but they kept it one person at a time. And when they didn't keep it one person at a time, 
they multiplied their sins such as a way to take a consortium together to establish high places to other gods and to trap the poor and the needy in schemes which were executed by many men. So this message, this warning is a warning to you. It's a warning to me, but it's also a warning to us collectively as a people. We cannot be about anything we'd like. We have to respond to the one who speaks from heaven concerning righteousness, and that is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But how is it possible to to understand this warning in the context of a gospel by which Jesus says, of those the Father whom the Father gives me, I lose none. Well, it, it means this, that you must begin to respond to the call of God's grace by working out your salvation with fear and trembling such that rubber begins to meet road. Now, I'm not saying that the first week you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you have to become mature, example, holy Christian. What I am saying is that if you have compromised in such a way as you do not war on sin any longer, you are not in the faith at all. And you should take heed to the warnings which over and over again God prescribes in Scripture. This warning is for people who delude themselves, delude themselves, presuming to be right with God, but really have nothing to do with him. This warning is for those who compromise with sin in their hearts, saying they'll repent some other day, or one day I'll get around to thinking about actually caring about God's righteousness. This warning is given to those who give very little thought to God. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, the New Testament says. And, and understanding that, we may begin to test and to take stock of, is Christ really, truly precious to us? Is doing his law a reality that we desire to do, or is it something that we hope to eventually do one day? Think about it this way. If you're, if you're even wondering if, if you yourself are refusing Christ in this moment, think about this. When is the, the last time in, in your entire week where you've meditated on God or thought about God or even thought about righteousness at all? Or do you just attempt to establish your righteousness in Sunday, uh, Sunday school and church meetings? If that's the case, if you give no placement to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you merely come to church to appease your conscience or to get cleaned up from the sins that you've committed all week, then you are missing the point of salvation. You were saved to be set apart, to be a kingdom of priests, to be holy unto the Lord. Now, I'm not telling you to establish this in your own effort, but rather to repent, to forsake your efforts, and to trust in the righteousness which comes about through faith in Christ. But this warning is given to people who have already supposedly done that. And it, it is remiss, it would be remiss of me to ignore these warnings and to not preach on this topic, although sometimes it seems unfavorable. But this warning is possible. It is possible for you to refuse Christ by being slack to serve him with holy fear. It's possible. If he warns you, do not, do not refuse him who's speaking, you must understand it is possible to refuse him. We can refuse Christ by walking in darkness, but claiming to be in the light. This is another way you can test yourself. Does anyone in the church or does any Christian brother or sister have any context for what's going on in your life? Or do you operate with cards close to the chest without anyone ever being able to see into your life? That's one very serious way to, to examine, to see if you're really walking in reality. Does anyone know what really goes on? Or are you just putting on a face? They, they call it a, a hypocrite. It's the name for a mask, which the Greek play uh, actors would, would wear. And the mask was done because the actors were really far away from the crowd. 
And so they would put on this mask and, and if it was a, you know, that's why the scene for the icon for drama right now is a happy face and a sad face. Those are the masks, which they used to put on to, to really make it clear that, you know, they're either happy in this moment or angry in this moment. And so this is a warning, which we must absolutely heed. Far be it from us, any of us, that we should know of the righteousness offered to us in Christ, yet not truly partake in it. And by partaking in it, I'm not meaning partaking in communion or partaking in church meetings. I mean truly partake into and appropriate the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I really mean. The Hebrew writer, even in this very chapter, tells us how we ought not to refuse. Therefore, verse 27, let us be grateful. Sorry, uh, yeah, verse 28, I think. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, how do you get that reverence and awe? I primarily believe that you get that reverence and awe by giving serious contemplation to the revelation of God as holy, which is found throughout all of this scripture, but some of the passages that I mentioned earlier today. This is how you begin to walk out your, your faith. You, you work it out by fear and trembling because you understand the one before whom you're speaking. Another way to test yourself if you really do understand God's holiness is think about how easy it is to confess sins to God and think about how hard it is for you to confess sins to another brother or sister, as if their opinion was more more important than Yahweh's. It's terrifying if you think about it, that we even have such a perverse view on the holiness of God and, and the importance of men. Acceptable worship unto God is worship that accords with truth. Jesus in the woman at the well in John 4, he says that the father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. And what it means to worship in spirit and truth is to worship according to the righteousness which God has established, not a righteousness of our own. We ought to draw near to him with fear and trembling, knowing that his nearness is our good. Over and over again, the right response to a holy revelation of God, a revelation which is terrifying, and awe-inspiring, which causes us to tremble, is not to run away from him, but to run to him. The Psalms say that the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him, run underneath the tower, and they're saved. Properly understanding the fear of the Lord, we do not run from Christ, but rather we run to him to be hidden in the rock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give to us a spirit of burning, that we would begin to look at our lives and and begin to ask you, Lord, we know that you are consuming fire, so come and consume all that remains that, that wars against your revelation. God, I pray that you would root out the things in my life and in the lives of the people here, those things which war against your holiness. God, I pray that you would deliver us from compromises with sin, that we would begin to make war on those areas that we have permitted the enemy to deceive us into thinking this is trivial or this doesn't really matter or God won't see. God, I pray that you would convince us of the holiness of your your person, that we would see that if this is what happened to Israel who turned away from you and that was merely a physical mountain, Lord, how much more severe is it for us to trample underfoot the blood of Christ, should we refuse you. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, understanding into these things. I, I also ask, Lord, that you would protect 
everyone here and, and myself from false condemnation, which comes from the enemy, but rather that we would be truly convicted of sin, that we would see your holy, righteous decree concerning how your children are to walk, and Lord, that we would make every effort to take hold and lay hold of the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this for your glory and your honor. Amen.